If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back, part two. Side B. Side B of a f- probably four-parter. <laughs> <laughs> Which feels weird to say, because usually we're getting towards part two and we're like, that's us getting really pissed. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Toilet break. Yeah, so... I'm holding it in. Uh, so when we were off, uh, I put a message on social media about my cousin. I want to say thank you to people who donated to that. It was really awesome. He is now home and... Raised quite a lot of money, um, way more than I thought was even possible between family and friends and, and you guys. So thank you very much for, for donating to that. It really means a lot. Hard to believe that good things can come of social media. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spinning. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so we left off. We, we talked about Elizabeth Wurzel's article uh, in 1993 about REM just not long after their automatic with the people. This She was reflecting on her experience of them in the 1980s at college, the fact that they had an appeal across all these different colleges and, you know, and then also the fact that they sort of represented a that point where alternative culture was really starting to get commercialised. Now, it's far from just R.E.M. that mm. were responsible for that, but I think in a lot of people's memories and impressions of the band, that does play a part. There's a sort of slightly lame, oh yeah, they were like the boring part of that alternative lifestyle sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think, as I've said, I think that's a little bit unfair. Um, however, we said it's important to acknowledge their early years, it's important to acknowledge just their kind of edginess and the fact that they were they were a really exciting, energetic, sort of quasi-cult band mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for a long time. My own opinion, my own honest opinion, as a guy who's brought R.E.M. to the table, uh, the early years of R.E.M., let's, let's say the time on IRS, the record label, uh, they're really not something I'm hugely fussed about. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I'm kind of the same opinion. I, yeah. don't, I don't have a lot of highlights from this period of their career, to be honest. Um, I will say, with the exception of document, uh, document. Yeah, that's probably the strongest five. of those collection of records. It's a really solid record. Mm. But I feel other than that, in that period, uh, up until Green, they were averaging one or two good songs per album. Yes, I agree. Um, They have an excellent best of, Mm -hmm. you know, a really world-class best of, but they were very patchy. And there's a lot of stuff in there that is very rarely awful, but is also quite rarely great. Yes, what I said in the last episode, you know, they're beige. And this is why the episode was about, like, uh, 
really difficult to research because I had the same feeling with Placebo towards the end, mm-hmm. towards the more recent stuff as well. It's like, now I'm listening to an album that's kind of similar to the ones that have come beforehand and there's not really a lot to really differentiate between these early records, apart from the odd, odd good song. And it's like, I can, you can see where the sound is incrementally getting better. But it happens very slowly. Mm-hmm. But when it does happen, the leap is massive. Yeah, I mean, I will say that the albums are actually, they're not hampered by the strong songs, right? But the strong songs in those albums give the band a different look. If those albums didn't have those standout singles, you know, like The One I Love and uh, South Central Rain and all those kind of things, if they didn't have those, they would be kind of like very competent genre albums. They're the kind of albums that you maybe would refer back to if you were a real fan of American underground indie rock and you'd be like, oh, there was this band called R.E.M. had this very good, consistent album. But because those albums had potential hit singles on them, it actually kind of casts the other songs in the album in a little bit of a shadow and it makes them seem quite unremarkable as a result. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's all quite relative. Yeah. If you were a band that didn't do hit singles, then people would be more inclined to appraise your album in a kind of more objective, um, holistic way whereas I, I find myself totally distracted by how fucking great this X song mm. here is and then like why are the rest of them not nearly at that level and that yeah. that maybe works against those albums but yeah I think there's probably also something in the fact that they're clearly writing singles and I think once you're in that mindset you can, you maybe there's maybe some rough edges or some mm. weird things that you just kind of don't put in which if they were the band that were doing the weird stuff that might actually benefit their mu- music more if there was more strangeness and yeah. more chances taken you, you know you know it yourself though if you're a young a young band if you're any band and you stumble across a tune that gives everybody the goosebumps you're like oh my god, this one is so good. We have to really lean into this. It's not like you're going to weird it up because you're worried that it might make the rest of your song sound shite. Mm. You're going to be like, let's make this amazing. Let's get rich off this song and just fucking stick whatever else on the album. I don't care, this song's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to kind of be quite human about your assessment of it. Like They must have had the same buzz when they wrote the end of the world as we know it or whatever like something that they was just like this is or one I love is probably the better one mm. it's just a, an objectively a great song not gimmicky just a great bit of music Fire. Fire. and so I, I think yeah we have to kind of take that on board like they must have been stoked about that as well. Um, but it does mean that some of the rest of it comes a, a bit of a jangly mulch. Mm, yes. <laughs> I don't mean that to be as unkind as it is, but uh, uh, that's just how it is. Um, it does have kind of consistent ties to some of the kind of jangly new wave American pop stuff, like psychedelic furs, you know, that, that whole John Hughes era. Pretty that, pink. Yeah, that, that that kind of stuff. There's there's a there's a home there for it as well as mm. you know I mentioned bands like U2 in the early days. There's something consistent. There's there. big U2 energy in some of the songs for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But without the pomposity. Yeah. And then obviously the Smiths. Um, also, I think we also me- uh, mentioned REM with Ferruccio when we were talking about that petrol emotion. There was like strong flavours in there as well. Um, I know Ferrucci was a fan of their, their early stuff big time, and he's a he's a punk guy, but he sees them as a punk band. You know, they were a punk band without distortion pedals to him. But let's you know, let's take a wee run through the discography, certainly of this first era. And you remember as well, like I said, I'm breaking this down into three eras. So we've got the early years, which is eighty to leave an IRS. We've got the mainstreaming rebuild era, which is sort of green through automatic for the people and monster up until the new adventures and hi fi tour in ninety seven. Then you got middle age in the come down, which is the up album in ninety eight until well, two thousand and eleven, but 
present effectively. Um, so looking at some of that back catalogue, the first release, we mentioned it before, um, was a single or the limited single really, Radio Free Europe in 1981, a song that appeared on their debut album obviously. And we said that made the New York Times' top 10 singles of that year, despite being such a small-scale release, which is pretty astonishing, actually. Um, That was followed by Chronic Town. It's an EP on IRS in 1982. That is absolutely adored by fans at R.E.M. Just fans of that kind of alternative era in American Mm. music in general. Very good. Much rougher, obviously. Much rougher in the recording and delivery and everything. But, like, just pretty astonishing how a band at such an early stage of their career were already at that point. Mm. It, It shows that they were a wee bit special. It was actually really quite heavily praised by the NME over here and early on that started to kindle a lot of interest in REM in the UK as a result um, but it was an interest that they weren't always able to satisfy due to their distribution which we'll come on to. Um, 1983 the Murmur album came out debut album, an album free of solos or synths, um, supposedly on purpose because they were trying to avoid dating the music by making it too 80s by having too many things that were in vogue at the time. It sounds quite 70s as a result, which is strange Yeah, absolutely, and again I think that comes from like those birds, Gene Clark type sounds that are in there you know core of it was certainly that kind of clean bright summery American guitar Mm. Um, Radio Free Europe was the band's first single in 81 and I think it's probably the best tune it's the best tune it's the best tune in the record I mean the the bass has got a really cool post-punky thing going on yeah the chorus is fun, it's got a nice dirty guitar tone, the piano's got a middle eight, the middle eight's got a piano in it, and it's an interesting song, you yeah. know, and it's a good single as well. Absolutely. Um, other songs in this one that tend to kind of get a nod are Talk About the Passion and Perfect Circle. really popular with fans but on I, I just find them a little bit wishy-washy that's probably just because i came to them too late um elizabeth wurzel talking about this era going back to that that essay she did she says i just couldn't stand michael stipe's lyrics i don't even mind that he slurs his words so much that they're impossible to understand apparently uh, the murmur album was jokingly referred to as mumble by people <laughs> because his delivery was so you know, shocking at the time. I don't find it that egregious at all. I don't. But then again, <laughs> maybe we're coloured by the what is it? The open vowels of grunge. Yeah, maybe <laughs> the closed vowels uh-huh. of grunge. Closed vowels of grunge. And the endless metal. <laughs> <laughs> um, she continues. I just hate that Stipe is too deliberately obscure and too fixated on ecology and other politically correct stances to bother writing songs that the less right-minded among us could actually fall in love with. In that fucking interesting that Elizabeth Wurzel, <laughs> it's like icon of alternative culture back then, was like Michael Stipe is fucking such a virtue signal. He's too woke. <laughs> He's far too woke. <laughs> Got on with the fucking tunes, Michael. Yeah. Um, they appeared on David Letterman in 1983. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing. That's pretty big news. Yeah, mm-hmm. fucking hell. Back then, 
you just genuinely did have to just write a good song and it got you on the telly. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking rad. Yeah. Um, so then that was followed by Reckoning in 1984. Um, yeah. Supposedly the poor distribution of this record really held it back despite a lot of buzz around the band people talking about it they were on American TV people in the UK were interested in them but couldn't get hold of it and so it didn't chart as well as it probably could have um during the studio sessions apparently IRS were sending messages to the producers trying to get them to make the album sound a bit more commercial I read that I read that <laughs> which yeah. were getting blanked um was it but that one of the producers there were two producers on the record wasn't that yeah. I think and I think one of them decided just they weren't going to tell the band that, yeah. that this was happening <laughs> that's, that's the kind of producer you want yeah totally it? it's brilliant <laughs> Well, it was definitely not a pure rocking band. I mean, REM shows, as I said, were definitely a rock show. Um, the first four tracks on Reckoning have real momentum to them. And I think also track nine, Don't Go Back to Rockville, captures that same energy. That's the only song I liked on it was Rockville. Is it? Oh, no, I mean, I think it starts off really, really well. I think this is definitely the strongest of their, their, their early period. The, the whole recording thing, in fact, was intended to capture the live sound of the band as much as possible. They used, I think, a, a binaural mic technique that was to mm-hmm. sa- sort of create a 3D impression of the band in the room, yeah. especially when you got it on headphones. I mean, the album itself is really guitar-rich, very high tempo. The whole thing was recorded in 16 days. I think the best tracks for me, South Central Rain and Pretty Persuasion... Actually, when you think back to that question we got in the Christmas episode about great songs that were never released as singles, I think Pretty Persuasion is a very good candidate for that because that is popular mm. amongst the aficionados of the band. And yeah, I think it, it's as good as most of what they put out, certainly in that decade. Rockville was the one that stuck out to me because that's when the country comes in. Yeah. You know, and that's... Mike Mills is big on the backing vocals there. Mike mm-hmm. Mills is a fucking massive country fan. Yeah. And it's not so evident over the next couple of records, but that obviously is quite a an important factor in their success. Mm-hmm. You know, they play about with it a lot, but as we get towards the middle period, it's definitely a, like a defining feature of the band. Yeah, yeah. So 1985, now we mentioned, of course, that they were bringing out an album every year, which is an amazing way to build momentum, let's mm-hmm. be honest. Like, can you fucking imagine a band doing that right now? No. Doing that every year, Fables of the Reconstruction was the third one. Recorded in England where the producer had worked with Nick Drake in Fairport conventions, so they were Mm. really going for something. He did not enjoy working with them. Did he not? No, he did not. He hated working with them. Too loud? Uh, they seem I just, like nice guys I just don't think he liked them That's odd isn't it mm-hmm. like, R.E.M. seem like a thoroughly fucking gregarious bunch of dudes Yeah There you go There you go Apparently Fables of Reconstruction is something of a concept record Using the tracks to explore characters of the Deep South I can personally live without this album altogether Bar track 3, Driver 8 Driver 8 is the one I've picked Which is right up there with the best work of that first decade A beautiful blend of melancholy energy and hooks. Have to be honest, um, we fucked about with this song in my band uh, years and years and years ago when we were first getting started. Really, a lot of fun to play. Other tracks in the album, like uh, Green Grow the Rushes, are they're fairly archetypal REM, but they're very meh for my tastes at that time. I mean, I think they tick all the boxes. 
yet it's just sort of slightly underwhelming. Yeah, driver eight for me is because it's uh, got that trademark arpeggio thing going on yeah. on the guitar, but it's almost got an anti-chorus, which yeah. is a really short snippet of a chorus. It's which, also got a brilliant middle eight. Yeah, really good guitar riff at the start too, mm-hmm. and which comes back towards the end. Yeah, um, it's a cool song. It's definitely the best. Probably the one, and like you're right, it's one of the highlights of this first ten years of this band. Absolutely. Uh, just a heads up as well. We we almost always do a playlist for these kind of episodes, and we will do them. And that track will be on it. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting to point out they were touring with the Minutemen in Europe at this point, uh, which kind of highlights again their alternative credentials, mm-hmm. their punk credentials. Yeah. Like they were friends with the punk bands mm-hmm. of that era. They were covering their stuff. I mean. There's some covers coming up in the future, like Wire covers and things like that. R.E.M. are not the dad band that people perceive them as later. Mm. Like, try and keep that in your head. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, 1986 Life's Rich Pageant Not a big album for me, but um, I think things like these days, they sound a bit more like peak REM to me, they sound a bit more sophisticated. Maybe actually due to Michael Stipe's voice and the fact that he's clearly getting more confident in Mm -hmm. his use of it. Um, The ecological themes in this one are really prominent. Um, As I say, it's not an album I get a lot out of, but I can at least appreciate aspects of it. Cuyahoga. very uh, ecologically minded something that would fit in a lot of progressive playlists these days uh, Fall On Me That's a very popular song from this album That's a good song, it's very Beach Boys Yeah yeah, it is. I. It's it's very lush that song. Yeah. Um, the layering of the guitar and it's nice. I mean, I mean, it's a fine. It's fine. It's fine as a song. I don't go home and listen to it, mm-hmm. but it's I can respect it on paper. Um, I think the eighth track in this one, I believe, is probably my favourite one. I picked here. that as well. That's so weird. It's, <laughs> it's, So joyous that song. Yeah, it's got turbo banjo at the start, like <laughs> proper. Like it's just, and it stands like a sore thumb because it's just there. Is, and then, is that Mike Mills doing it? Or I think it, I think so. Right, because Mike fucks about. I mean, he dresses like he fucks about with a banjo, to be <laughs> honest. But um, yeah, I think he f- fucks about with a lot of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. on these albums. I think like lap steel and yeah. stuff as well. It's just on its own at the start of the song, and then the song is something completely different from it. You're like, what? <laughs> kind of um, weird. It's a great song. It's, it's a great it's song. It's really upbeat, mm-hmm. um, and and it's actually it's. Upbeatness is accentuated by the fact that it comes right on the back of the dreary flowers of Guatemala, which I fucking hate. Um, it's an interesting period for R.E.M. Um, because I think if this was a roller coaster, right, they've been trundling along nicely for these first four records, and it's they're just at that moment where the track starts to slope now. You know where things are going to start to speed up and pick up pace. 
and it's not long really before they hit that big dip and they just fucking absolutely go fleeing. There's a change for this point too. I think distortion becomes a thing for mm-hmm. REM. Like they were like, wait a minute, we don't have to plug this straight into the amp. What? <laughs> like it's it's almost like a revelation uh, by the time it gets to their next album. I mean, I found REM more than a little bit underwhelming when they tried to attack a song, but the notes sort of tinkle around like cat bells or like a crystal chandelier or something mm. like that, you know? They're trying to sound fucking brr, but actually it's just, what? It's like someone dropping a tray of teaspoons or something like that. It's just very odd. Um, I respect that they were forging a sound. I respect that they weren't taking the easy option. It was just bang the gain up. Some people did that. I mean, the Stooges had done that a lot, mm-hmm. you know, 14, 15 years prior to this. But uh, looking for power in the music without pedals, it's admirable. But the relentless jangling could become painfully fucking twee at points. And that was a bit to shift. Um, just prior to it shifting, though, they released Dead Letter Office uh, in April 1987. They released two records in 1987, um, and the Dead Letter Office was a B-sides collection from their early stuff that came out first. It's quite easy to get hold of, actually. I used to see it a lot. And at this point, also, a guy called Scott Litt came on the scene. Yes. Their producer couldn't make it, and he sort of suggested they try working with this dude, and Scott Litt would go, he did himself out of business. Mm-hmm. The other producer, because Scott Litt went on to be, become the producer for the next decade. Um, Scott Litt, you may remember from his work with Nirvana mm-hmm. on In Utero, he did, uh, was it Penny Royal T, I think yeah. he did. Putting his sort of REM sheen on that. No offence, Scott. My least favourite fucking song mm-hmm. on In Utero, but we'll move quickly past that. Um, document, or document number five, August 1987. The time to rise has been Their first record to break into the US Top 10 at number 10 housed at least two huge songs by the band um, this is the first R.E.M. album I really connected with I mean, really what I did was as I said I got into them later in their career and tried to work my way backwards and this was as early as I could stick you know this was the earliest album that I got that actually was getting repeated plays the themes on it shifted to stuff like left wing politics and workers rights uh, you know Senator Joseph McCarthy and the witch trials and unions and all that kind of stuff finest work song the first track I love that song it's a really good song great song Mm -hmm. much rockier Like right out the gate much much rockier that's the difference the guitar is noticeably distorted and it wouldn't have been the same had they not made that production decision it's also got a really bold anthemic approach you know that steady pace and the big venue yeah. drums like that's something really quite Very different so. for them mm-hmm. yeah because some nice bass licks really nice guitar tones the distortion is quite nice on it yeah chorus is great um, nice vocal hook probably one of my favourite songs for this period of the band probably it's, one of the best probably the best song I think from this period of the it's band it's class and can I draw a comparison with something you mentioned earlier Pure Morning by Placebo Yes. Where you go into like a slow, steady, big song that is designed to be played in a bigger venue mm-hmm. and has that, that lower BPM. Yeah. It really reminds me of that shift in that song. Yeah, there's a, I think you can hear bits of Michael Stipe and, and Brian Moko. Oh, definitely. They were they're, they're like, as far as I'm aware, they're pretty friendly. Are they yeah. Not? Yeah. Oh, I don't know that. Um, track four on that one as well, Disturbance at the Hern House. I think that 
tune really demonstrates the smooth organic development from murmur to automatic uh, because I can hear equal measures of both records and so both periods in that one tune and that's quite nice as a kind of a measure mm-hmm. of where they are in their career. Uh, the fifth track I mentioned it Strange An excellent cover of Wire And I didn't know It was a cover of Wire <laughs> Until years yeah. later Because I didn't know Wire But then I got into Wire Through REM mm. Which in itself Is pretty fucking cool <laughs> There's something strange Going on tonight There's something going on That's not quite right Michael's nervous And the lights are bright There's something going on That's not quite right Although they, You see they reference Their own names in the lyrics Mm-hmm. Michael's nervous and the lights are bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, track six, you may have heard of it. It's the end of the world as we know it. So I need to say at this I point fine. that um, see the spoken word fast vocal thing that it does, it fucking grinds my gears, man. It's absolutely marmite, isn't it? does it in a few songs later on as well he does that kind of spoken word to draw I think there's one in New Adventures and Hi-Fi as well he does and, it in the song Bad Day as well yeah, yeah. and that's for me I'm like nah it's just not I don't like that at all yeah, yeah. huge song though huge it's a song huge, like, huge song on MTV yeah. as well because of that video of the wee guy kicking around the derelict mm-hmm. house on this track I can hear things like violent femmes I can hear bare naked ladies and all sorts of American sort of twee indie references it was in retrospect of a huge breakthrough moment um, it's iconic in their catalogue and I think as I was saying that you know on the roller coaster you can see that it's starting to speed up there and then track 7 one I love I mean, this, this is a fucking brilliant bit of music. It's entirely pessimistic, a cynical, but supremely catchy song written in a minor key. I think also, you know, just the, the tone of it casts the entire title as ironic, which is obviously echoed in the lyrics and things like a simple prop to occupy my time. Mm. You know, to write a love song, and I've seen people play this at weddings, mm. not acknowledging the irony of what the fuck the song is actually singing about. Yeah. It's baffling but um, such a great bit of music like, honestly love it yeah a major label would need to snap them up after that song yeah, absolutely you know. yeah um, and then I think the 10th track in this one's worth mentioning King of Birds This really patient, really tender song that really foreshadows automatic for the people. There's a, there's a line in it <laughs> which I wish I'd remembered for the Christmas episode. On the Christmas episode that we did, we got a question from Yara in Israel asking, uh, what are your favourite misheard lyrics? And she was talking about the cranberries mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm searching food for you. Uh, this one, he says, singer, sing me a given. And I always <laughs> thought he said, singer, sing me a gibbon. <laughs> I swear, I, I heard that for years and years and years till I took the time to actually look up what, what he was saying. Yeah, that's a good misheard lyric, that. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really annoyed that I didn't remember <laughs> it. And actually, I, I stumbled across a few of them because Michael Stipe does kind of slur his words or he says them far too fast. Like mm-hmm. Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight, we mentioned on that show. Sure, we're not going to wake up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, in 1989, they released Eponymous, the best of the IRS years, and that was the band's last record on IRS. It dropped just one month before their debut on Warner Green. Mm. I did actually wonder, and I didn't have the time to look into this, but I wouldn't imagine Warner would have been too happy about that. 
like dropping a best of REM into what I'd imagine would be the publicity campaign for their debut on the major label. So that's happened quite a lot though with bands and Well it makes sense for the small label, label because you're mm-hmm. you're you're totally riding that publicity, but uh, Anyway, yeah, maybe it was fine, but I would be surprised. Yeah, because you see shit like that happen, and you know whoever owns the the rights to the master recordings will then release a compilation that the band don't agree with. Yeah, you know that shit happens. All exactly. The time. Yeah, and, and major labels are surprisingly not known for being the most helpful, kind, generous souls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not really sure how that went down. Anyway, the the main reason the band gave for leaving IRS was just due to the poor distribution in Europe that we mentioned earlier on, which I think. Not just they felt, but was generally considered to be holding back the success of their records. Mm. IRS just couldn't get the record into enough shops, couldn't make it as widely available as it needed to be to cope with the demand, to get reflected in the charts, really. Because I think it, a lot of these albums would have been doing a lot better if people were able to find them. Yeah. You know what it's like here? Like Before the internet, in Scotland, like Dave's talked about it up in Ulness, you just took what was there. Mm-hmm. That was it. Took whatever the fuck you could find. Yeah, it's, and I, you can see... How that, that kind of notion is supercharged as well when they've had a sort of record with two huge singles on it. Absolutely. At that point, you're like, no, we've got capacity to shift units. We need to be able to get them with people. So they went over to Warner. Although apparently the Warner contract included a clause that guaranteed total creative freedom. No intervention. Mm-hmm. And that was what swung it. Yeah, I... They're five records into their career at this point, so... They're, yeah, and they're, they're not showing signs of really fucking about too much. Yeah, so the label, like, a major label's going to take that bit, you know I mean? They're going to take that bit, because they don't think the band are going to go away and write fucking a metal <laughs> record, you know? Yeah, they're, 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 like, they're not, like, instazendering about or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. like, like, they start banging bits of metal with a drill. Um, okay, Green, 1988. Very, very well-known album indeed. You're bound to have seen lying about shops or houses. R.E.M. Street. <laughs> yeah, the street. Ben, outside the back of Mark's house. Um, R.E.M. become a major label band. Um, they took, as I said, that ecological and political message to big stages that was another thing that I think convinced them to do this mm. it's because they did have things to say and a lot of the songs that we've already covered Koyahoga for mm. example talking about indigenous people like Rage Against the Machine that's what they did as well yeah they <laughs> absolutely smashed the man by making him rich yeah <laughs> it was really clever Rich. way to stick it to them Lennon would be delighted were he not full of vinegar Vladimir, not John. (laughs) (laughs) He was probably full of vinegar now as well. Um, Yeah, so I mean, and Green is not such a massive departure from their other records. There's there's a lot of commonalities with that, but it's got two very prominent tunes, Mm. of which I would say there's only one that I actively love. So, Orange Crush, let's, let's talk about that first. It's an Orange Crush political song about Agent Orange. You'll hear the line in it, we are the agents of the free. Uh, when I was at university, actually, did like one of my projects was about Agent Orange and the impact of it on the Vietnamese and the impact of it on the Vietnamese after not just the American forces, but the media's attention left. And they wrote a song about this as well. Did they? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating subject, Agent Orange. REM are trying to draw people's attention to this because the crime was not just the use of it but the crime was the fact that we ignored the damage it continued to inflict on subsequent generations of people and so that's that's not a light matter to bring the American public on a major label mm. you know and, and, and also in a, a hit song because Orange Crush is one of their best songs it's one of their best known yeah, it's songs. one of their best songs yeah one of the only REM songs I actually liked from the singles that I'm, I was aware of them having before yep. this podcast um, it's got an aggressive edge despite being really quite minimalist mm. 
Um, it's got a really good call response motif in it, as you mentioned earlier on. It doesn't really have a typical verse chorus structure. No. It's more just like, it's basically just a repeated chorus and then these kind of melodic segues and it's got a very strange bridge that has kind mm. of Vietnam samples and helicopters and stuff like that. I mean, the album, other than that, has a lot of very meandering stuff on it. Uh, even as an REM fan, I have to be honest, going back to it, I barely recognise it because I've kind of tuned it out. Um, I think, like, for example, the, the, the track The Wrong Child on it, number six, has to be one of their most aimless songs. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Um, the piano that comes into it during the bridge takes a weak song and makes it actually quite sickly. It's I think it's really poor judgment because it just becomes schmaltzy and a bit mm-hmm. bulky and it's sort of I think if I'd been seeing this in real time, I'd have been like, Oh no, they're oh, on no. a major label yeah. and they're gonna start doing this all the time. Well the records do get longer from this point onwards as well. That's significantly true. longer. That's in, true. in some ways. Um but yeah, I think they did open themselves up to a lot of criticism from the anti REM factions, yeah. shall we say. But the other big song on that record was obviously Stand, which was very kind of diametrically opposed to Orange Crush in terms of tone. I don't hate Stand. I don't hate it the way there are. I, I definitely hate a song that we're about to talk about on their next record. But I find it, it a very forgettable song, if I'm totally honest. It's forgettable, it's cheery, it's a bit inane. Like, mm. inane's the word I would use. They're really good at doing inane songs, they man. They do do some inane songs. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Stand is the biggest offender by any means. Yeah. I can totally deal with it. It's not It's not a tune that I feel the need to even skip. I mm. just wouldn't say it's one of my favourites. There's a couple of songs on this record that I like. Um, I like I Remember because it sounds like Susie and the Banshees. Mm-hmm. The riff is very Susie and the Banshees. It's really, yeah. really downbeat. It's got some nice vibey guitar swells in the verses. The bass powers the whole song, which is cool. I really like Turn You Inside Out. There's something about the way he sings, I will turn you inside out. I find really fucking catchy mm-hmm. and there's a wee vocal before it as well which adds to that le- that layer of catchiness and again it's just like it sounds a bit like you too just the guitar tone a little bit but there's just yeah to be clear we're not talking about yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you too we're talking about actual alright you too there's just a really nice harmony in there really good backing vocals um, I believe in watching you is the bit that comes before it and it's just a really good vocal structure mm-hmm. that and uh, Orange Crush have got some really interesting vocal structures which a major label band wouldn't really do Yeah, which is one of the things I quite like about the fact this is a first major re- label record exactly you and know? there you've put your finger on it because we are now at the start of the second era mm-hmm. of REM mainstreaming with Bill If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
yeah, it, you can see why they were picked up. You can certainly see why they were picked up after Document with One I Love. You can see that I'd imagine the label were pretty happy with Orange Crush and Stand because they've got two pretty strong singles. Although not world beaters, but certainly pretty strong. They're off to a decent start with this album. And I mean, this album, as far as I'm aware, shifted like four or five. In fact, it's actually probably quite a bit higher than that. I'm saying four or five million, but now that I think about it, those were older stats. So it's probably closer to six million copies, mm-hmm. which is... Wow. Um, what year was that? 89? Uh, yeah. Th- well, this came out in 88. 88. Um, I think the first track on it's, funnily enough, titled Pop Song 89. Yeah. Be- mm. Perhaps. That's, a cla- that's got a really good riff, that song, actually. I quite like uh, it's, it's all right. Mm. It's all right. There's, there's a couple of them at the start of the record. So th- it's funny because, yeah, they either start a record very oddly or very, very well. I'm not so sure the Pop Song 89 is very, very well, but yeah. Six million is not a lot in 88. For a major label rock band. For a band doing their major label debut, it's pretty tasty. I mean, okay, the the deal they supposedly got when they went to Warner was reported to be, I think, quite handsome, like Mm -hmm. $8 million or something like that. Like, quite a bit. But it was a number of albums as well. And Warner was certainly not complaining Mm -hmm. when they got the next record, uh, which was Out of Time. Yeah, that's the record that you've definitely seen in the street and in your dad's car. And that logo, that iconography of the of the cover is, is R.E.M. to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know? It's mm. worth mentioning that, by the way. At this point, R.E.M. did iconic covers. Mm-hmm. Like their, their album covers, partly because of the success, but also just partly because of the savvy designs, were very, very distinct. Like mm. really, really memorable covers. Um, Which, to be clear, the first five records do not have that at Do not all. have. Very interchangeable. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> their last records definitely do not have that um, but Out of Time hit number one in the USA that was their first number one record in the big time got into the house and I called you out I could tell she had been crying crying it's that same same song on the radio makes me sad that roller coaster was absolutely fleeing at that point um, R.E.M. didn't tour this record. Green <laughs> was the last album they toured for quite some time. Now, this is where I start to build my case for why R.E.M. are absolutely not U2, for example, who couldn't make a tour big enough to capitalise upon the records each time. Fucking Zoo TV and all these preposterous, huge fucking initiatives for their world tours to roll it. Like, R.E.M. released their biggest album and didn't tour it. They then released an album that almost sold double their biggest album and didn't tour that either. And R.E.M. were clearly not playing the game in the same way as other people. And that's also what sets them apart from Coldplay because Coldplay are all about, I mean, I get it, it's a different industry now, but they're all about these fucking obscene, bloated world tours. R.E.M. at this point were not doing that. First of all, they'd taken a year out as well, like just not long prior, which was the first thing they'd done that in their career. And here, their records are getting so big that they're like, do we need to tour this? Do we want to tour this? What kind of venues will we be touring? How long would we be in the road? If we start touring, we can't just do like two months or like three weeks in France. Mm -hmm. It's going to be... 18 months of Mm -hmm. touring around the world. Is this what we want from our lives? And they just said no, which is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I have no idea what contract they had. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But fucking hell. Uh Imagine a record company being, oh, so you're not going to tour the biggest album in the world right Mm. now. It stands in stark contrast to a band like Metallica who... When they hit the road, they're on the road for three years. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Like, that is it. But to, to be fair, like, there's massive gaps between tours and they're usually only doing, like, two shows a week because their stage setup takes, like, three or four days to set up in the stadium yeah. and then three or four days to pull down and then transport to the next venue. Um, but you're on the road for three years. And Bruce Springsteen's the same. He's yeah. on the road for three years. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just the way it is. And if R.E.M. were a band now, it would be exactly the same. They'd be on the road for three years. And... That's why I'm I'm entreating people to say, look, when you roll your eyes at this band, just spare a thought. Yes, they became the establishment, not because I think they meant to, but they also, from that point, definitely did not rip the piss, definitely did not seek to grotesquely capitalise upon it. They sought to try and navigate it in a way that they felt comfortable with, both in the music... Mm-hmm. And in their conduct within that industry, not absolutely burning themselves out, not getting into situations where you're on the road for two years and you become an alcoholic and a drug addict. R.E.M. sought a sustainable career. That's that's amazing, actually, in hindsight, when you consider some of the the implosions that went on around them at that time. Yeah, and grunge was happening here as well, so... 
there's also the question of the mainstream is now completely passed us by and we can't get, we can't get back to it. It's yeah. impossible for us to get back to it now. So I think taking a step back was probably the smart thing because there sounded change and was going to continue to change. Exactly. You know? They were now in the process of like clearly changing their sound between albums. I mean, as you said, those first four or five records, you can pull certain album tracks off them and you would be struggling to guess what record they were from. Whereas from this point onwards, it becomes pretty obvious what year each track's from. Um, I mean, we will get to this, but w- without a time, there is a slight clownishness to the record. I mean, more commonly characterised, maybe, or more kindly characterised as levity. But to me, you know, we spoke about a name in terms of stand. This one strays into, into like, really inane to the point of stupid mm. points. You know, but at the same time, there's some really great bits of sombre, emotive music. I think Out of Time feels very erratic to me mm-hmm. as an album. Um, Elizabeth Wurzel, going back to that piece, uh, she mused, uh, I always thought that if Michael Stipe would just play the game a little bit, R.E.M. could create a masterpiece of a pop album. That's precisely what happened with Out of Time, which was an R.E.M. album for the rest of us, for all the people who just didn't get it. With the exception of the irritating, nitrous, oxide-giddy, shiny, happy people, mm-hmm. Out of Time is an album of love songs, from the groping uncertainty of losing my religion to the loneliness of half a world away, to the desperation of low, to the ecstasy of me and honey. For the first time ever, R.E.M. was creating penetrable human songs. This was real people music dealing with real people problems. There are plenty who felt that Stipe's new concern with relationships and his move away from the abstractions was a form of selling out. That's an interesting observation, that, that his change in mm. lyrical subject caused a bit of a backlash. I feel like he'd already been doing that. He'd already been dabbling. You know, he had, you know, Fables of the Reconstruction was a concept album, Mm -hmm. lyrically at least. And, you know, he'd moved on to albums that had very strong ecological themes and that. So I'm not sure. The one I love, for fuck's sake. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's necessarily that inconsistent. Although I think she's right in observing that. Um, She continues, not long after Out of Time was released, U2's album Achtung Baby came out, marking the first time that band produced an album that had nothing to do with apartheid or civil war in Ireland or world peace or political strife or much of anything other than Bono's girl troubles that's quite interesting because she's sort of drawing that parallel like when Michael Stipe shifted to personal observations and personal emotional subjects and introspection Bono did too Mm. with that record in terms of the tracks on it I mean talking about inane and bits of stupidity radio song features KRS-One of Boogie Down Productions who we've covered on this before a horrible song I hate this fucking tune When I got to the show, yo, oh, oh, I could tell she had been crying, crying. It's that same, same song, the DJ sucks, makes me... The fucking Kula Shaker organ, the stupid rap, the hype man shouts, the NXS guitar. It doesn't work. The mm. shiny happy strings, the lyrics, it's fucking shit. Mm. It's fucking shit. Yeah. Oh God, it's Agreed. so annoying. I, I quite like losing my religion. Oh, I mean, they, they, um, they follow it with a 1.2 billion mm. streaming mega hit that is irrefutably a fabulous piece of indie pop. Life is bigger, it's bigger than you, and you are not me. The links that I will go to, the distance in That is a, just a great fucking song. I mean, it's been played to death. But it still almost manages to hold up to it. It's that good. It's a it's a pop masterpiece. It really is. It ebbs and flows so well. Did you know it only got to number four in the USA? <laughs> wow, that's fucking wild. Yeah. I mean, I thought "Losing My Religion" was a number one song. Mm. Um, I mean, like all the best REM singles, i.e., not "Shiny Happy People," it's built around that kind of resounding melancholy thing as well. Almost none of their best songs are in a major key. I, I, I have no idea quite why they decided that this song had to follow radio song. I think it's jarring. It's like a fucking clown kicking down a door at a party mm. and then the really cool guy has to walk in at the back of him, mm. you know. But uh, I, I find this album very oddly sequenced, very oddly chosen, yet it's absolutely massive. So yeah. the fuck do I know about music? Um, Elizabeth Wurzel mentioned Low. Skip the park 
I love that tune It's slow and a bit morose But the chorus is such a tender flourish uh, I think it feels quite relevant Given that they were kind of surrounded By the grunge movement mm-hmm. as well And it's quite a grungy song um, I think Near Well Tiven Oh yeah, mate, that's the one I meant to mention Yeah, it's mm-hmm. another total Mystic R.E.M. tune Really encapsulates a lot of the mm. early sound. I mean, the doubled vocal, the buoyancy. Still Beach Boysy as well. It is. Mm-hmm. Aye, the, the chorus is pure cute and cheerful and Beach Boysy without being inane. That's mm. the thing. Um, we have to mention Shiny Happy People because we've got an obligation, uh, but must we? It features Katie Pearson, the B-52s, who, as I said, were also from Athens, Georgia. Um, Her harmony is is not nice. (laughs) It feels as though it's the wrong... She's singing the wrong note of the chords. Well, so the band had already recorded the entire song, Mm. and she was invited to go into the recording booth and do whatever felt right. That was how that was done. Yeah, and it was wrong. (laughs) Musically, it was wrong. Did you know, in one of the most staggering bits of trivia that uh, I've unearthed in in a while, this was the original opening credits music for Friends. Wow. And it was replaced by the Rembrandts. In the pilot episode of Friends, it was originally cut with shiny, happy people. (laughs) Um, Do you know that uh, when Michael Stipe made an appearance on Space Ghost Coast to Coast in 1995... Shut up, Michael Stipe! (laughs) (laughs) He he said that uh, he hated this song. It was uh, one of the few Warner period songs that was not on their 2003 Greatest Hits album in time. uh, And they rarely played it live. Mm. I think he's kind of defrosted on it a bit in recent years, but it's not a favourite. But having survived that... We do get into a run of truly outstanding stuff later in this album. I think Half a World Away, the eighth tune. I love yes, that tune. Great. Nice oh. and downbeat. This could be the saddest dust ever seen. Turn to a miracle. I like my mind. Yeah, waltz mm. time though they, they are so good at waltz time The mandolin, the organs It's not got a lot of percussion in it I absolutely love the lyrics in it It feels like a very dizzying song I mean, if I was making a best of it would be on there Yeah mm-hmm. um, Tex Arcana as well Number nine, just a very solid, propulsive indie rock tune. It's got some of that distortion-free punk energy of the early years again. I think, as I mentioned, if this was on an album that didn't have mega hits to overshadow it, it would have had more of a starring role. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite a strong tune in that sense. Um, and it actually reminds me a lot of some of the early Britpop stuff, maybe like Shed 7 yeah, bands uh-huh. like that, mm-hmm. uh, including the string flourishes that are in it, because you know how a lot of those indie bands in mm-hmm. Britain started using those little bursts of strings. To, the Manics did that quite a bit mm-hmm. as well. And I really, uh, the two that I want to make mention of in a bit of detail, Country Feedback is incredible. Absolutely fucking love that song This is the R.E.M. that I think would go on to break out of that three minute pop cage The lap steel on it, no drums, really dark, saturated distortion but played really gently One of the most affecting performances I think of Michael Stipe's career I was central, I had control, I lost my head The lyrics are incredibly touching, I I think. Um, It's crazy what we could have had has got to be one of the most bullseye breakup lines. It's it's a beautiful song. And I think the 11th track on it, Me and Honey, is also worthy of note.
just because of how much a precursor it sounds to new adventures in hi-fi actually there's a really trundle and midwest openness to it including a gear shift of a chorus that feels at home in in their later recordings so out, out of that album that erratic I mean I think it's a messy album I get that it's considered a huge success but I think it's a very messy collection but a new band emerged like that they, they would the next record they were going to make didn't have a glut of bouncy indie hits and that distortion free guitar jangle was really fading into the distance now and it was getting replaced by this dark sort of rolled off gainy Rickenbacker and, and layered acoustic guitars they were they were on the cusp of changing something they tasted sudden intense success and and yet they didn't really have an inclination to yeah. revel in that mm-hmm. too much. And I think before we dive into that next album, which is unsurprisingly automatic for the people, we should probably break there and do a part C. Part C? Okay, well, see you next week. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs>